back in 2003, 2004, I uh, was working with an NBA sports agent as a life coach for some of his players. And I would travel with this guy to different places where his people played, uh, guys that he had that he represented. He represented guys like Avery Johnson, uh, Sean Kemp. Uh, he had some of you guys, you young guys don't remember Sean Kemp. He was, uh, he was the first guy who got a $100 million contract in the NBA. And the guy that I worked for got him that contract. And uh, so I was working with this guy. I met him. And uh, in the summer, we'd go out to Las Vegas because that's where they played summer league. And so we'd go play, we'd go out there, and we would go watch guys that he had, young guys. And I remember the first time I went, I'd never been to Vegas. Uh, I'd heard about it, but I'd never walked the streets. I literally felt like I walked into a sewage dump. I'm not kidding you. From the time that I, I got off the airplane and was, I, I let out of the, of the cab at the hotel, there were flyers of naked women around, like just little flyers to try to get you to go be with these people. And you know, you know the saying, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Even that seems to communicate that this is a place that you can do anything you want, anytime you want it, and nobody will ever know about it, which is not true. But when I think of Las Vegas, I think maybe it was a little bit like Corinth. Corinth was like that. And, and when you say Las Vegas today, people think of that. It was called, in fact, what? Sin City. Well, Cor Corinth was so bad morally. It was so bad morally that there was actually a term Corinthianized. That person's Corinthianized, which means they've been sexually immoral. And, and that, that term, that's how bad it was. There was uh, a thousand temple prostitutes just waiting for the people to come through the harbor. There were two harbors there, which meant it was a major trade route. And a thousand temple prostitutes waiting for the guys to get off the ship to ply their trade with them. It, it was a terrible place. A vile place. And you know, just because some of them became believers didn't take that away from them. In fact, a lot of the believers there were influenced by these evil influences so much so that when Paul wrote not the first letter, but the second letter, he was still dealing with some of this stuff. But it was awful some of the things that he says. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 5, the first letter he wrote to the Corinthians, he says in 1 Corinthians 5, 1, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, talking to believers, and of a kind that's not even tolerated among pagans. That had to hurt, you know, to read that. I mean, and them know that it was going on. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you rather not to mourn? In other words, 
You don't even care. I feel like some of that stuff is happening here. When you see leaders, pastors falling into immorality, or they know things are happening and they're not even mourning over it. They're just apathetic towards it. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul talks about the, the Corinthians. He says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. They were all that. That make you feel better about yourself? (laughs) But you know, Paul goes there Remember, this is Paul's second missionary journey. And so Paul is going, and he's got Silas, he's got Timothy and Luke with him, and he's pressed through Philippi, and then he was in Thessalonica, and then he was at Berea, and we saw the last couple of weeks he was in Athens. And every place he's going, he's going into synagogues, but he's leaving little groups of believers there. Churches. He's church planning everywhere he goes. And remember when he got kicked out of uh, Thessalonica and Berea, he sent Timothy and Silas to go really kind of teach them all that Christ commanded while he went on because he was such a lightning rod. He went on to Athens. And we last week, remember, we talked about how he responded in the Areopagus. But I just want to remind you for those guys that weren't here that we saw in Paul and Silas that these things that made them men of impact so much so that they referred to them as men who turned the world upside down. One, they lived boldly. Two, they spoke biblically. Three, they spoke inclusively to people. They, they, they shared the gospel without stiff-arming people because they were homosexual, because they were greedy, because they were revelers. Whatever they were doing, they shared the gospel with people inclusively. And fourth, we said they suffered trustingly. In every place, they they experienced suffering and they kept. They didn't quit. They just kept going. And then we saw how Paul also, uh, last week when he was in Athens, what did he do? He discerned the bridges with the gaps of these pagans. Remember that? And he, he went in there. He was looking for bridges to connect with them. Men of Athens, I see you're very religious. I see you got a an altar to the unknown God. Let me tell you about that God. And he didn't quote one Torah reference. He didn't, I mean, he didn't quote them, but he shared them. And guys, you can share the gospel without giving people the addresses to all the verses you're using and share it in such a way that a pagan can understand. That's why I gave you that sheet last week to share, to write out the gospel. Remember, we said last week, The four main ideas of any gospel presentation is what? It has to start with God. God's plan. Far too many people in the United States and churches and ministries start with the people. God loves you. Paul did not start like that. Drive down the highway. See all... It's funny when you drive... I was in Missouri, man. There's so many God uh, billboards there. 
Jesus loves you. You're going to hell. You know, or, or whatever they say. But Paul didn't start with Jesus loves you. He started with God created the heavens and the earth. You see, you, you start with God. You've got to lay the foundation. God created us for a relationship with Him. And we talked about that. So God's purpose. Second was man's problem. Our, our problem as human beings is we've rebelled against God's leadership. We don't want God leading us around. We want to be our own leader. The captain of our own ship. But then the third part of the outline is God's provision for us. Because that problem brings judgment. And Paul laid that out in his argument in Areopagus. And, and, and God's provision is Jesus. A man who said, I'm going to die on a cross. Three days later, I'm going to rise again as payment for your rebellion. And finally, the fourth thing is our response. How are we responding? We have to call people, invite them to respond to that message. And Paul did that. And some did. Dionysius, the Areopagite, and Damaris. But it wasn't this huge swell of people like a Billy Graham crusade. There's a few people. I want you to think about Paul. For years now, he's been traveling and going, leaving people, but in every place he goes, there's persecution. Every place. Can you imagine that? Every city you go to, people want to run you out of town or they want to kill you. And so Paul now is called to Corinth. He's called to Corinth. The sewage pit of that world as far as sexual immorality. No standards there. Think of Romans 1. Think of Romans 1. Debased minds. You know, anything goes. It's like when I was in the Philippines, you could go down McSaisai Street over there and for five bucks you could get somebody killed. That's how, that's, isn't that true, Bob? Yeah, you, you, you literally got prostitutes running up to you, grabbing your crotch, saying, come on, come on, come on. It was like nothing I'd ever seen. It made Vegas look tame. That's how bad it was. And Corinth would make that look tame. So how do you think Paul was feeling when he got to Corinth? with everything that's going on, going into that city, do you think he might have been a little discouraged? You think? I contend that he did. You know what he says in 1 Corinthians, the letter that he wrote to them later? This was later. He wrote the letter. But he talks about when he first went there and he says, and I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. He was discouraged. Have you been discouraged? Mark, I'm sure when you were over in Germany, you were discouraged. When the doctor said, you're not going back for months. And you're trying to figure it out. You're trying to get a doctor here to clear you to come back and he won't. I'm sure that's discouraging. I've been discouraged in my life thinking, okay, God, I know you're wanting to do this and it just would not work out. Or he's sending me into a place I didn't want to go. That's what Paul was. Corinth was a tough place. Paul was discouraged. But like my brother Dave said this morning, thank God for God, right? Thank God for God. 
You know, Corinth was a big city. Paul was just in Athens. You remember how many men were in Athens I told you last week? 10,000. Corinth had 250,000 men. 400,000 slaves there at this time. 12 temples. No standards. Everybody did what they wanted to do. It was like judges. Everybody did whatever they wanted, but they were so sexual. They were known for sexual immorality. That's what it was known for. But we see God encouraging Paul in this text today. We're only looking at the first 11 verses. And I want to give you four thoughts that God, how God encouraged Paul. Four thoughts. First of all, and because these apply to us as well as Paul, but he encouraged Paul, first of all, through divine appointments. You know what a divine appointment is, Riley? It's, it's when you meet somebody, and the world would call it coincidence, but God brought that person into your life for a connection. It's called the divine red thread that ties us together. God weaves this masterpiece, right? And so the first way he encourages him is through divine appointments and we're going to see that second is through divine affirmations have there been times in your life where you've just been struggling and just at the right time god affirms you as his child or what you're doing what he's called you to do at just the right time you go wow lord i really needed that divine affirmations we see that in this text third is divine alternatives. You're going this way and you think this is where God wants you and He goes, nope, i got this over here and this is much better because this is my plan. Your plan's to go here, but no, I have a divine alternative for you. Thank God for divine alternatives. And fourth, He encourages him through His divine authority. His sovereignty. And I know you hear it every week about his sovereignty, but man, I take great comfort in that, and Paul did too. And there's no better place to be encouraged by God's sovereignty than in the middle of a wicked city or a wicked situation. And that's what he does. So we're going to read this text and come back and look at each one of these, uh, starting in verse 1 of Acts chapter 18. If you have a Bible, join me in reading. After this, talking about his time in the Areopagus, Paul left Athens and he went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. He commanded all the Jews, and if you look at the different commentaries that relate to that in the historical writings, it was like Claudius, that there, there was a, a person named Christus that many think it was really talking about Christ, but Christian Jews were the ones really forced to leave because they were stirring up trouble there, and Claudius kicked them out. Well, as God's providence would have it, Aquila and Priscilla came to Corinth and Paul found them. Which means, what, what, what does it mean if Paul found them? What does that imply? Divine appointment. Well, yeah, but what was he doing? Looking. He was looking. I was talking to a guy the other day that was discouraged. 
he told me he was going to call me when he got discouraged. He didn't. And after about two weeks, I reached out to him because I knew he was going through a tough time. And I said, um, you know, I put the ball in your court. I told you to call. And he goes, yeah, I just sometimes try to bulldoze through those things. I said, that's a biblical thought. I mean, I, yeah, I see that really well. You know? I said, that's why we're here, brother. We're the body of Christ. We support each other. We help each other. God calls us to relationship with Him and relationship to others. Guys, listen to me clearly. You cannot bulldoze your way through life when you go through issues. You need brothers around you. And, and I thank God for people that I have that speak into my life when I'm discouraged. And so, Paul was looking and he found them. It says, and he went to see them, verse 3, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath, and he tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. Paul never stopped being a missionary, guys. You never stop being a mouthpiece for God. He was tent making, you know, Six days a week and on the Sabbath, he was in the synagogue trying to win the Jews to Christ. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the Word, testifying to the Jews that Christ, the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there, and he went to the house of a man named Titus Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in the city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. May God bless his word. Paul was encouraged by these divine appointments. Do you think it's a coincidence that Priscilla and Aquila were tent makers like Paul? Do you think God doesn't bring paths together of common interests, common backgrounds, common things in order to help us, encourage us? I mean... He searched for Aquila and Priscilla. He didn't even know who they were, but he searched for them. What he was searching for is some kind of encouragement. Why? He was by himself. Silas and Timothy were back in Thessalonica, Berea, doing the work there. And he had left Damaris, Dionysius, believers there in uh, Athens, and gone to Corinth. And he's just... God, show me another believer. Show me somebody. And Priscilla and Aquila were there. Same trade, same purpose in life. 
because they knew what their purpose was as believers. Same philosophy of life. You know, Paul was a tent maker. You hear it's, it can be leather worker. You know, um, we call it a tent maker. In fact, the phrase tent making usually refers to somebody who is working as a uh, vocational minister, but they, they work to support themselves as to not be a burden to people. There's a lot of people that do that. And that's where that phrase came from. For us, Paul was a tent maker. But here's what Paul said. You know, uh, by the way, rabbis, rabbis were required to learn a trade because they could not demand money from the people they taught. Like the Greeks. The Greeks would demand money from their students that they would pass their wisdom on to. And they would get compensated for that. But Paul had a different philosophy. He voluntarily renounced his right to money even though he said biblically they should get funding from it. He renounced his right because he didn't want to be a burden to any church and he did not want to present that he was like people who wanted to make money off of what he was teaching. And I I fear that uh, in this day and age that happens a lot. All you got to do is turn on the TV and you see a lot of people doing that. But even what I would... I, I can't tell you some of my frustration. I Years ago, before I really settled down, I was doing a lot of traveling and speaking at conferences with people that would get $10,000 to go speak for an hour about Jesus. And one of the first questions I'm ever asked when I'm invited to go speak at these conferences, and even today, what do you charge? And I tell people, I don't charge anything. I've never charged anything for speaking about Jesus. I don't do that. How can I charge for what He's given freely to me? How can I go charge this church over here to pay me $10,000 to preach and share the Gospel with them that has been given freely to me? That's insane to me. And I've heard all kinds of justifications for it. Oh, you know what? Well, if you don't value what you do, they won't value what you do. That's pragmatism. That's all that is. If you don't ask for the money, then you know I like doing that because it'll ensure they get a lot of people there and it's a stewardship issue. There's all kinds of rationalizations for it. But I believe we're going to have to give an account one day as God's leaders and His messengers, His shepherds, But Paul said, I'm not going to be a burden to these churches and I'm not going to make people pay me for sharing the Gospel with them. And God blessed that. I really believe that. But don't miss the divine appointment of these particular people because do you know they became lifelong friends to Paul. You'll see them mentioned I think seven times in Paul's letters. Now Priscilla is also called Prisca in the Scriptures, but it's the same person. It's Aquila and Priscilla. And they were a great encouragement to Paul. And, you know, when you think about how God brings lives together, I remember I was in... I was discouraged one time. I, I, I moved from Jacksonville to Texas 
to start a ministry with a guy out there. And I got out there, and this guy decided when we got there, you know what, I've changed my mind. Um, I had a job offer over here, and it's a ministry that's going to pay me, so I'm not going to have to trust God to provide every month. Uh, they're going to offer me a salary. And so, so I have moved my whole family out to this place in Texas to start this ministry with this guy. And he tells me that the week after I get there. And I'm like, wow, okay. Um, Lord, I don't, I don't know what to do with this. I don't know what to do with this. And I was with a ministry called East West Ministries where I was going to Russia. And I, uh, the pastor of the church that we were at was so kind and gracious. He, he's a good friend. And he said, you know what? We could use a consultant in the area of men's ministry and evangelism on staff. Why don't you become a part-time staff? Start your own 501c3. I'll help you do it. I've got people in the church that will help you. And that's what started His Light Ministries. I'm sitting in the office thinking about, I don't know what to call this thing. You know, I didn't want it to be Doug McCary Ministries. And I was thinking about His Light, and I had a lighthouse on my desk. And I thought about two verses in the Scripture. One where Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. And in Matthew, He says, you're the light of the world. So it's His light through us that the world sees. So hence the name His Light, International Ministries, which abbreviated means what? Him. It's all about Him. And that, that came in that office that day as I'm sitting at this church thinking about how the plans that I created or thought were from Him weren't and he had a different plan but I was discouraged but as I was there going through this I get up from my office and I'm going over to the main part of the building and a guy who was a friend of mine from Delta Airlines had given me a free ticket anywhere in the world he said it's a buddy pass you can use it anywhere and so I didn't know where to go. I didn't know what to do. I was discouraged. I just said, I don't even know what, what you know, I, I'm not going to Russia as much. So I'm walking down the hall and I see this guy I've never met. His name was Brian. And he says, hey, and he introduces himself and we start talking. And he says, so what do you do? So I share with him the story and about how I'm in the midst of this. And he goes, well, how'd you like to go to the Arctic tundra with me? <laughs> I go, are you serious? And, and he goes, uh, yeah, we're ministering to the Eskimos up there in the Russian Arctic tundra. And um, I need somebody to go with me. Um, would you be willing to go? I said, well, you know what's weird? My friend just called and gave me a buddy pass to go. Um, when? When are you going? In a month and a half. Okay. Um, let me pray about it. Well, what ended up happening is I met a guy up there named Peter Hootie. I don't know if you remember that name. 
But we went up and we met a guy that we ended up discipling that was the only believer in his whole people group. The only believer in his whole people group. 30,000 people in the Nancy people group, Nenets, N-E-N-E-T-S, in Russia. And one believer that spoke their language from that group who wanted us to disciple him. And we did. And Peter Hoody ended up being the catalyst for 20 churches in that people group and now over 500 believers in the Arctic tundra. These are Eskimo people. I got to be a part of that with my friend Brian who has become a lifelong friend. I've gone to the Philippines with him. I've, I've been to Russia with him many places teaching and, and we're still in touch to this day. But I met him in 1999 when I was discouraged. God brought our paths together and opened up. Do you know how many times I've told the story about going to the Arctic tundra? I took Lori and two of my kids up there. It's unbelievable. I got to, I was riding in Eskimo driven, I mean, uh, reindeer driven sleds. I was lassoing reindeer. I mean, it was unbelievable. And I got to do that with Brian, and he was a divine appointment God brought into my life that day at that church in Cypress, Texas. And in the same way, God brought Aquila and Priscilla into Paul's life to encourage him. It was a divine appointment that they stayed friends for a long time till at the end of his ministry, Paul's still talking to them and talking about them. God encourages through divine appointments. Verse 4 says he reasoned, which means he dialogued in the synagogue every Sabbath. Verse 5 says, when Silas and Timothy arrived, you know what's better than new friends is old friends when they come. Can you imagine what Paul thought? This was a divine affirmation. God brought them to him and they brought news of the Thessalonians, how good they were doing. Paul writes about it later. In fact, over in 1 Thessalonians 3, Paul says, listen, but now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you for this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. That was a divine affirmation that God brought Silas and Timothy with good news about what the work Paul had been involved with there. Paul, it wasn't all in vain. They're growing. And, and we're able to deal with some of these heresies they're dealing with. But it wasn't just about the Thessalonians. You know what else he told, that they told them about? They brought a gift from the church at Philippi. Paul, look, Philippi sent this to you to help you. Now you don't have to tent make. You can just focus on the Gospel every day. Think about that, how that would have encouraged him. I'm sure as he's sitting there making those tents, he's wondering, man, I want to be talking to people about the Gospel. I I want to be sharing with these people. Not sitting here working on this leather. Especially after eight months. Yeah, he wanted to do that. But you know what? It says that even though he was doing that, 
He was occupied. That word means devoted to what? The Word. And what Word is that? Jesus is Messiah. He was devoted to the Word. Testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. When? Every Sabbath. He was, even though He was making those tents, what was He devoted to? The Word. Guys, I'm just going to tell you, one of the biggest struggles for believers in this country is to be devoted to the Word. Amen. We get devoted to our jobs over our Word to people. doesn't mean you don't do a good job for your employer. It means you ought to be thinking, how can I be sharing with people? How can I be a witness? It's not just something I do as a as a mission here or a mission there. It's an everyday, everything mission. And Paul was devoted to it. He was occupied. And how did they respond? It said they reviled him. In other words, that, that word means to injure reputation, to taunt. And what does he do? He shook out his garments. Remember where that comes from? Over in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus told the disciples when they go out, Over in Matthew 10, I'll read it. He says, Listen, if anyone doesn't receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. And Paul shakes the dust off because he's telling them, Messiah's come. There is no plan B. Jesus is a suffering Messiah. You need to get that. If there's no Jesus, it's judgment. You either get Jesus or judgment from God. It hasn't changed. It's still that way today. And Paul says, the blood is on your hands. You know where he reads that from? That's Ezekiel 3. He says, I'm innocent because I have taken the message. I'm a watchman on the wall. I've taken the message to you and you've rejected it, but I'm innocent. But it was a divine affirmation, this message that Timothy brought. In the midst of that, sometimes when you're going through that rejection, it's hard, but God brought this divine affirmation. I remember one time I was struggling in ministry and I was over in... Uh, Russia, in the southern part of Russia. And, and sometimes when I was going over there, you'd feel like we'd do these Billy Graham-style crusades at night to start churches. We'd start on Monday. The first night, there'd usually be 8 to 10. By the end of the week, the Word had spread throughout the town and we'd be up in the hundreds of people there. And we'd be sharing the Gospel. And typically, there would be 10 to 20 people who would follow Jesus and be part of the nucleus of that new church there. And I was going through a time where I was just wondering, is this even really mattering, right? You're just over there and you're just wondering, are you really making an impact? And with my friend Brian, the guy I told you about earlier that I met in Houston, um, in Cyprus, I was with him down in southern Russia on the Black Sea. We were doing training down there. We were training a bunch of pastors and missionaries it was this thing called the BLTC, the Bible 
a leadership training center and we were training these pastors and missionaries and I was teaching on evangelism and teaching about discipleship and at the end of the first day this guy comes up to me Mr. Doug, Mr. Doug, do you remember me? And I, I didn't remember him. He goes, do you remember coming to Kirov? And I said, yeah, Vasily, I remember, and Alexander, the two pastors there. He said, I was one of the first believers from that church to come to this training center. I remember when you came and preached, and I'm the first missionary from that church. And it was like God just gave me this wave of affirmation saying, you know what, Doug? I'm doing the work. You just be faithful to where you are. But I needed that at that moment. Paul needed this at that moment. That divine affirmation. And God brought it to him. Well, in verse 7, it says, And he left there and he went to the house of Titus Justus. A, a worshiper of God and his house was next door to the synagogue. So not only did God bring divine appointments and divine affirmation, He says, Paul, I have a divine alternative for you. The synagogue ain't receiving you. Guess what? I've got a guy that lives next door to the synagogue. So when people come to the synagogue, there's a church right there if they're seeking the one true living God they can go to. Because this guy, Titus Justice, was a worshiper of God, seeking God, but he was seeking God in the synagogue and they weren't seeking the same God that Jesus was the Son of. And the people in the synagogue were teaching legalism, law. And it wasn't about the law. It never was. It was always about faith. It's always about trust in the one true living God. And so we see this divine alternative. This, this guy named Titus Justice is also a guy probably referred to in Scripture as Gaius, G-A-I-U-S, in 1 Corinthians 1.14, Romans 16.23. He's mentioned along with Crispus in 1 Corinthians 1.14 as Paul baptized them. So people believe that this is Gaius and Crispus. By the way, Crispus was the ruler of the synagogue who said this is the real deal. This Paul is talking about the Yahweh that I know and Jesus must be the Messiah. And he and his family believed. And it says, and many believe. But notice what it says in verse 8. It says, hearing, hearing Paul they believed and were baptized. Romans 10. How do people come to faith? By hearing. By hearing. There was something about the way God used Paul in their life to bring these people to belief. God wants to use you to be a vocal mouthpiece for His Word. You can't just leave a track somewhere. He wants you to be involved. God uses tracts to get people talking to people, but faith doesn't come by reading. It comes by what? Hearing. And that's what He says in Romans 10. Romans 10, 14-17. But this was a divine alternative. God had a, a plan for Titus 
and, and, and for Crispus, and we read about them later. But notice in verse 9 what he says. Paul, don't be afraid. Go on speaking. Don't be silent. Why would God have to tell Paul that? Because what had happened in every other city when people believed? Yeah, they ran him off. And so his natural human inclination is, oh no, now I'm about to get the boom laid on me because Crispus, the, the, the ruler of the synagogue, is now a believer. And God gives him some divine authority saying, Paul, I'm in control. Not these people. You wonder, you have somebody in your life who is in authority over you or who thinks they're in authority over you. I don't care if it's a, the President of the United States. I don't care if it's the Governor of the state. I don't care if it's a, uh, uh, whoever it is. There's one person that outranks everybody and his name is Yahweh. And he said, don't be afraid and don't be silent. Isaiah 12, 2, I love it. Let me read it to you real quick. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation with joy. You will draw water from the wells of salvation and you will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord, a call upon His name. Make known His deeds among the peoples. Proclaim that His name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord. For he's done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Do you know, guys, that we are put here to put God on display to the world around us? Not to hide in a corner and enjoy all the benefits of his creation without giving him praise for who he is and what he's done. And God says, Paul, don't be silent. He says, I have many people here. Okay? It's like 2 Timothy 2.19. God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are His. Before they ever bow their knee to Him, He knows who's His. Why? Because their names were written in the book before the foundation of the world. Ephesians 1. 4. Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. And so... He says to Paul, I have many in this city, Paul. And Paul was there for a year and a half. A year and a half, guys. Teaching. I was reading yesterday in 2 Kings 6 the story of Elisha with an S and his servant when the Syrians were coming after him. And he said, Lord, open up his eyes. Let him see. And he opened up the servant's eyes. There were chariots of fire in the hills. And you know what was so amazing about that? These people came to kill Elisha. And he said, Lord, strike him blind. And it says, the Lord heard his prayer. And he struck them all blind. This whole army blind. And Elisha led them into the camp of the Israelites in Samaria. And the king goes, do you want us to kill him? He goes, no, don't kill him. Give him bread and water. Just feed him. Be nice to him. Show him grace. And what happens is, is there, is there another person in history that people wanted to kill 
and he could have struck him down and instead he showed him grace. Is there a person in history who's done that? Yeah. And I was reading that story and I was struck by that and it says the Syrians left and they didn't bother him anymore. It was a while. They would eventually, but for a while. Those people who were there who knew what happened said, whoa, we can't mess with them. God is in control of the people around us. He's in control of governments. And we can trust in His authority, guys. So, are you discouraged? Are you looking for divine appointments? Because they're there. Look for God's people. They can encourage you. Are you looking uh, to God's Word? God sent Word to Paul. He affirmed things that were going on. Are you looking for God's work? The work He's called you to. And are you trusting in His sovereignty? I, ho- I, hope, I hope so. And I hope hearing this today encouraged you because it's not just about Paul. It's about you. That story of what God did in Corinth is for us to be encouraged as well. So, uh, thank you guys for coming. Uh, appreciate you being here. Chuck, do you mind closing our time in prayer today? Yeah, yeah.